Welcome to Little City Big Sound. I'm your host, David Pender Lofgren. Our guest this episode has been a staple in the Bellingham music community for over a decade. As a founding member of Yoga Man Burning Band, he played countless shows up and down the I-5 corridor, including many, many community dance shows here in Bellingham. He further developed his signature tenor saxophone sound during his extended solos with Lucky Brown and the Funk Revolution, elevating their already infectious grooves to a higher emotional plane. Most recently, he developed a musical partnership with the late virtuosic multi-instrumentalist Lucas Hicks. Together, they traveled to the Basque country, playing a nonstop combination of complex composition and improvisation, and practically took up residency on the street corners and in the cafes of Whatcom and Skagit counties, treating passers-by to a visual and auditory spectacle, sometimes whimsical, sometimes somber, but always fascinating to witness. I am, of course, talking about a multi-instrumentalist in his own right, Thomas Deacon. I sat down with Thomas this past August, just before he moved to his new home of Louisville, Kentucky. He's had a profound impact on my experience in the Bellingham music scene as both a listener and a player, and I wanted to capture a bit more of his perspective before he left. Here's our conversation. Thomas Deacon, welcome. Thank you very much. Deacon Hicks was the collaboration between you on clarinet and Lucas Hicks on the C-System Chromatic Button Accordion. Mm -hmm. It began with you sitting in on a Rattletrap Ruckus set, is that right? Yes, they were playing the Red Light. They had a weekly at the Red Light. And I was living in West Seattle at the time. Um, But I loved the music. I really loved that band. And I had a band practice... I think it was Wednesday nights that they were playing, and I, and I had like a 10 o'clock in the morning band practice in Bellingham every week. So I'd come up and I would do the band practice, and then I would, and then I would just kind of hang out all day long until it was time for Red Light, uh, for Rattletrap Ruckus to play. And I would go there, and eventually I found at uh, Main Street Music on North State Street, I found a soprano saxophone, and I was all excited about it before I realized that... Uh, me and most of the rest of the world, rightfully so, hates the tone of the soprano saxophone, unless you're Sidney Bechet. And I'm trying to think of anyone else, but that's it. Unless you're Sidney Bechet. And no one is Sidney Bechet. And I had that, and I was excited about it, and uh, Joel and I were hanging out. Joel Ricci and I were hanging out, and we both sat in with Rattletrap. And afterwards, Lucas was really... Uh, you know, he was really magnanimous about, magnanimous about the whole thing. He was actually really friendly and really kind. And and um, he said, you know, actually what I've been hearing is kind of a clarinet sound. And I thought, oh, that's that's cool. And he, the next week he brought a CD that he had burned that had like 34 tracks or something on it. There was a bunch of different music Rattletrap was pulling from. I remember I went home to West Seattle where I was living at the time and I just spent the entire next week with that CD playing and um, I dug out an old clarinet and and spent the entire week playing along to that album or that CD, that whatever. I guess back in the day it would have been a mixtape. And I learned Temptation Rag and a couple of other things so the next time I came up to Bellingham then I had something in my pocket to pull out and wave around. And it was really sweet. It went really well. And... That's right about the time we started just hanging out all the time. And, uh, and I guess just fell in love with each other and 
you know, played music all the flippin' time. Like, it was the first time I had met someone who doesn't mind just looping the same song a thousand times. And we could, we could sit down and make some green tea and we could play the same song for three hours. And at the end of the three hours, it's not like we would stop because we were tired of playing the same song. It's like we would just stop because one of us had to go pee or something. And that was a unique experience for me to meet someone else who really didn't mind and who actually, you know, actually got off on, on endless practice. Uh, and it, it totally ramped up my game. I found it very inspiring. And he's such an incredible educator, such a great teacher and such a phenomenal person, just such a, just such a ball to be around that it was really easy for the next, I don't even know, uh, two or three years, I guess three years, something like that. It just became very easy to, uh, to spend time with Lucas and to develop music and to play music and to talk about music and to talk about philosophy and, pervert Devin Champlin's original version of the popular hobo card game three card into a nearly unrecognizable form and to come up with kind of a little bit of a language that um, we shared and, and um, yeah, basically try to revive the ancient Menderite ways that haven't been seen since the dawn of time. It was a phenomenal collaboration and a, a wonderful way to get to know an incredible person. So we're recording on August 14th. This coming Sunday, uh, August 19th, you'll perform a concert to celebrate the release of Deacon Hicks's final album titled The Last. Fact. Because we won't release this interview until after that performance, I'll ask the question like this. How did the show go? It was fantastic. It's heartbreaking. It's poignant. It's raw. It's real. It's exhausting. And now it's over. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> uh, no, what did you think of it? <laughs> uh, I was stirred to the core. Uh, can you talk about where the last, um, the term the last comes from? You know the answer to this, don't you? That's how a lot of this is going to go. Okay. In, uh, in the Basque Territory which is mostly northern Spain and some of southern France, uh, currently occupied by the Spanish-slash-French governments, but at the ancestral home of the Basque people. At the end of the night, when everyone's totally wasted and it's time to walk along these incredible cobblestone streets back to wherever it is that you're crashing for the night, uh, the first thing that happens is the very first bar you come to on your way home at the end of the night, you all have to go in and have a drink, and they call it the last, and they're always very convincing about no, it's just the end of the night. It's like a nightcap, except it's, it's actually the beginning of the night. It's like the last is never the last. The last is actually the invitation to the entire rest of the night that's going to take up everything until the sun comes up. And um, everyone is always surprised by how long it goes on. It's, um, it's a total pretense. And then it's just like a portal to the most bizarre part of the night that lasts until morning. So why call the album that? Because there's a whole lot more life. Are you guys going to play the album 
Uh, by that I mean, are you going to play the tunes on the album at the show? Uh, we won't play them in a block. We won't perform the album in the order of the album, but we will be performing an awful lot of the songs that are on this album. Also stretching back to Hicksian tunes from previous albums and years before. So it, we're going to be representing a very wide range of tunes. And how do you do that in Lucas's absence? Uh, who, play, who plays his part? Probably the only person on the planet who's capable of playing those parts on an instrument that's absolutely ridiculous, uh, Stephanie Nillis has been spending a lot of time, and as far as I'm concerned, forging new ground on the supposed instrument of the melodica, which is basically a child's toy. It's available for $65 on Amazon.com, and it's two and a half octave range. And it's like the right hand of a very, very cheap plastic accordion. And instead of having the bellows power the reeds, you just have a little cheap plastic tube that you blow into. It's basically like a big uh, fingered harmonica is what it is. And she's somehow figured out a way to attack it with both hands at the same time and oftentimes play bass kind of melodies while comping chords and playing actual melodies. And it's it's a, it's pretty astounding to see and to sit next to in here. And as far as I know, there's no one else on the planet who could do it. So we're very lucky to have her. And you've been playing with Stephanie in a variety of combinations. Maybe, can we just back up for a second? Can you explain who Stephanie is and how you guys came to play together? Yeah, Stephanie Nillis is uh, like a musical necromancer who comes out of New Orleans. She's been there for about 11 years. She was conservatory trained. She's from Chicago originally. She's big into Chicago blues, but mostly she grew up on classical music. Um playing an awful lot of Viennese waltzes and performing on mostly grand pianos after a certain point. I think she got involved with the Jalopy Theater in New York City quite a while ago, and that sort of perverted her musical direction. She ended up in New Orleans because it was a place where, in her words, she could just fuck off. And um, everything was incredibly cheap. There was absolutely no pressure of any kind. And she went down there and had like a couple weekly gigs a year um, for a couple of years. And she's been touring out of there for a decade now. And she's totally sick. She's just pulling together gigantic influences from all around the entire planet and mashing classical and jazz and blues forms together. And, um, yeah, I can't really say how... I, I can't really express how really impressed I am with what she does. She's just an absolutely phenomenal player and a terrifying musician to sit next to and try to blend in with. And, um... Her ideas are gigantic, musical and otherwise, her conceptual ideas and her philosophical ideas. She's just a humongous kind of a person. And um, and she's going to be playing it all through this little, little tiny melodica. Wow. Uh, you, you've recently been performing with a group called Mingish, uh-huh. playing the compositions of Charles Mingus. Mostly. Uh, our last interview is with Julian McDonough. I know that who's guy. Who's the drummer from Mingish. Mm-hmm. Um. When I asked him about playing with you, he said, quote, That first gig was super heavy. I was in a rough spot. He was in a rough spot. It was almost like a wake. The way that everyone played was exactly how it should have been. 
Everyone just played as honestly as they could. That whole band, to me, represents spirit. I asked Julian what it was like to play with musicians who aren't, for lack of a better term, classically trained jazz musicians. Mm -hmm. Um, What does it feel like for you to be a part of this group jumping into uh, the music of a jazz legend with such a um, unique combination of players? as a part of that. Uh, I think I've always enjoyed my music with like a healthy dose of psychosis. And if it's not strange in some way, it's hard to find it interesting. And um, Mingish is totally awesome. It's, Kind of a concept, I'm not even really sure where it came from. I'm, I'm pretty sure I could blame Stephanie Nillis for it. She's, uh, she's fascinated by Nina Simone and the works of Charles Mingus. And um, sometime along the last couple of years of touring with Stephanie, she started to bring up more, more Mingus tunes. And uh, she's... For years, she's kind of played a version of Jump Monk at the end of one of her songs. I think it's Caution Tape, and it goes over really well. There's something really honest and accessible about the music of Charles Mingus where, like, you can hear it, and it's such it's, it's just so bluesy, and it's really rootsy, but it's also, it kind of, I mean, shoot, I don't know. It reminds me of Devin Champlin and his band, The Sons of Rainier. Like, someone told me the other day, they're like, I just love The Sons of Rainier. they you know, they write such simple songs. And I was just like, what? I mean, the it's like looking at a Tesla and being like, it's just such a simple machine. Like you just push the pedal down and it goes and you push the other pedal down and it stops. And there's this wheel you can just turn left or turn right or make it go straight. And it's like, the level of complexity behind the simplicity is just so phenomenally vast. You cannot even imagine what's going on there. And to me, when I listened to, to Devin's songs with, and performed by the Sons of Rainier, it's a lot like that. It's like, God, it comes across as so simple and honest. And like the amount of craftsmanship it takes to make that effect happen is so huge. Um, I mean, that's just as complicated as anything. And it's a disservice to call it simple. And in that same way, I almost called Charles Mingus's music simple because it's just so heavy. It's like it's so it's got a hook. It's got a great hook. It's got a great melody. There's a lot of stuff that uh, that all the jazzers put together. It's could be sung, but you're probably not going to wake up and you know walk down to the corner store for a little jug of milk and be singing whatever confirmation unless you're in college. In which case, whatever. But a lot of Mingus's tunes, they get in you, and like you start to wake up, and you hear them first thing in the morning in your head, and they, and you, you know, they're the soundtracks to your dreams, and you start looking at the bay, and you start hearing these tunes come bubbling up, and and at a certain point, Stephanie started kind of bringing these things forward, and it was while Lucas was getting sick, and we decided to go forward with a 
a Mingus, a show, a program of Charles Mingus tunes. Um, I guess it was at the Green Frog at the time. I'm not sure. It was right when the Green Frog was kind of turning into the Firefly. But there was an awful lot going on. Lucas was getting more and more sick, and uh, there was just an awful lot going on. We started putting together a program, and actually Lucas was really excited about it, and he was going to play alto saxophone on a couple of the songs, which is something that Casey Connor might appreciate because Lucas had sworn up and down that he would never play alto saxophone again. And we almost got him out of retirement. You know, it's just a matter of timing. It's too bad. Uh, but it was the, it was the end of October. It was the end of the month that he had died. And it was kind of the first thing that I'd gotten into, um, after he had passed on, and I remember kind of, it felt re redemptive to have something where I could take my, I could wake up, I could wake up at like two or three in the morning and uh, pack up my horn and I could walk down to the Pickford Dream Space Studios where Jenny has had a really great studio for years and years. And, um, and I could unlock the, the, the building and I could walk up the stairs and I could go into the studio and I could be completely by myself for like six or seven hours and I would turn all the lights on, I would open the window and I would pull out my tenor saxophone and, and it would just be like me and this huge stack of sheet music, um, that Stephanie had printed out from the Charles Mingus real book. And we had, you know, 20 songs we were trying to put together. And like you said, I'm not classically jazz trained. It, it took an immense amount of work. I mean, it was every single day and most nights. It was all the time that I was trying to figure out just what was going on with these tunes. And it was so great to have something that took up my attention in that way, that took up a total... It took up my total focus. Um, and it got me out of the house and just kind of kept me moving around. By the time we got to perform it, I would say Julian is absolutely right. It did feel like a wake. And it did feel like completely honest music. It felt like something that had been mulled over and worried and turned over and picked at and prodded and just kind of just smashed into shape over hundreds of hours. And uh, by the time it came to perform it, it was terrifying. It was the hardest stuff I had ever played. Um, it was nearly inaccessible. I still didn't understand where I was in the forms. I still didn't understand most of the chords that were spelled out uh, with all sorts of these crazy chord extensions. And I had no idea really how to how to string coherent melodies through those tunes, but it was such a blessing to be able to have the chance to try, at least. Um, and to come face to face with the realization that even if we failed, it was a room full of friends and it was worth trying in the first place. And from there on, we've just kind of kept practicing, um, you know, so we, we've added to the repertoire. We've done a few different shows now, and it's a phenomenal band of totally hard-hitting badasses who are really trying to do something that they are arguably capable of. Um, we'll see, I guess. And there's, I think there's a lot of drama behind that. And it's great to try to excel at something that is clearly so demanding and so difficult. Um, and I'm really happy if people enjoy kind of hearing the byproduct of that effort, you know, if people come to the shows and they enjoy it. I think 
I think, I mean, I can't speak for anyone else in the band, but I think for me it's definitely um, a massive attempt that I haven't nailed yet and that I'm willing to keep working on. It's a killer band, and it's a whole lot of fun, and I think it was Stephanie's idea, and I'm glad it exists. Mingish. When did you decide you wanted to play music as the main activity of your life? Uh, I mean, was there a moment? No, I mean, it's kind of been a fight. Like, there's not much that's very attractive about that as a lifestyle, honestly. It, uh, it, the pay is miserable, and the work is grueling, and the hours are endless, and the very best you can hope for is to feel like you're failing all the time. Like, if you are... If you're working hard at trying to get good at something that there's no roadmap for, that there's really no guidebook that can tell you when you've crossed certain milestones, if you're working every day at it, uh, by the time you excel at anything, you've just found more stuff that you're failing at. And so it's a really crappy way to make a living. Uh, and I fought it for a long time. I mean, I would, I would oftentimes go back to work in construction. Or when I first started playing music, I was making a lot of ice cream at Mallard, and I was working at the Hub Bike Shop. And, um, and I've always been a big fan of odd jobs. God, actually, yeah, actually, I think I think I just quit. I don't I don't think I'm playing music anymore. I think I'm just going to move to Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, you know maybe I'll make jewelry or something and sell it on Etsy. <laughs> I, could, I could work in my bathrobe. It's like a dream come true to own a bathrobe. <laughs> uh, do you? So do you feel like it wasn't a choice then? Do you feel like it's just something that? Uh, you fell into or, the, or that you just realized you had enough drive for or talent for that do you have to do it? Yeah. Um, I do have to do it. That is something that has, has become more and more clear to me that it's an inescapable aspect of who I am and it's really not up to me. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the word talent that you use just because there's uh, there's no such thing as a talented person who hasn't tried incredibly hard to excel at whatever it is that they're supposedly talented at, you know. Like, if you look at Olympic athletes and you're like, oh, it's a very talented gymnast. It's like, well, that's a very talented gymnast who's been working since they're two years old every single day, all day long, seven days a week, and has sacrificed any semblance of a normal childhood to get to where they are. At certain points, like, I'm, I'm not even really sure talent exists. Hmm. I'm interested in the way that, uh, at least for, for me, it was very difficult to learn how to interact with people that are listening to you play music when you get off the stage. Uh, because oftentimes our experience, like, you're, like you said, um, you know, you can feel like you're failing a lot. And there are a lot of people that can enjoy the thing that you feel like you're failing at. Um, have you learned how to deal with people in a way that makes it feel like the exchange can be whole when you get off a stage and they say, gosh, you're so talented. Like what, how do you, how do you navigate that moment? I think so much of what that is, is just a reaching out and it's that everyone is, uh, it's critical 
for everyone's well-being that they are seen and heard and acknowledged as people in space and time, that they truly do exist, that they are seen by the eyes of others, you know, that they're appreciated by some other thinking being. And I guess most of the time in that circumstance, it just seems like it's it's someone who's just putting out that call, like they're just reaching out a hand. And they saw something or they heard something that moved them and they felt a certain way and it inspires them to just reach out. And so it's a reaching out. And at that point, so at that point, it's not even about the words. It's not, you know, <clears throat> it's not that they really even need to have a conversation. And it's not that I'm interested in having a conversation. But if there's one thing that music has been designed for specifically, it's to bring people together. Um, over time, I think that's been really its only reason for existence. And so it would be unfair to not reach out back to that person. It's like when you're performing, that's all you're doing. You're just, you're just reaching out and you're seeing what sticks. And when it works, then yeah, someone will come up afterwards and they, you know, they, they mirror that in, in, a, in a classic human gesture of reaching out. And then at that point, it's like, that's what a connection is, you know? And so it's, I mean, I don't get offended or anything. If someone's going to say, if someone's going to come up afterwards and say, oh my gosh, I think you're so talented. I think that's fantastic, you know? And I, and I hear them and I'm, and I'm with them in that moment. And I'm behind them all the way. And it's just like, it's, that's, not a, that's not a personal thing about ego. That's just like, God, it is good to see someone excited about something. <laughs> it is really nice to see that something can have an impact on someone in some way, you know? And that it's something that any of us can do. Like, it's just something that any person can do. They, just, they can use their hands and their mind and their emotions and they can speak honestly and something will happen. It's like this wonderful reassurance that we are alive and that we have this time and that it's not over just yet and that that was really wonderful. When you go see people play music, are there oh, things Oh, I don't go out. Ever. Really? <laughs> I go out very, very rarely these days. If you say you want to make that connection, you watch someone play and go, I'm driven to connect with them. Mm -hmm. What do I do? What do you do? I, I just do what everyone else does, you know? I wake up, I put my pants on, and I get a hold of them on Facebook. <laughs> That's the trick, right? <laughs> no, I like, uh, uh, I really enjoy writing letters. Um, I got this old typewriter that's totally awesome that my friend Lucas gave me. And um, I like to save brown paper bags. And you can usually tear them along the crease pattern in a very nice way, and they end up with this wonderfully tattered edge, and then you just take them and you roll them back and forth across your knee for a little while, and it turns into this kind of like fuzzy, friendly brown paper. And you just roll that thing through this typewriter, and you crank out a letter. And it seems like whoever you're trying to get a hold of, someone knows someone who knows, you know, that person's P.O. box or their address or someone who knows them or something. And if you try, you can always get a letter through because it's the U.S. mail and nothing's going to stop it. And I think that out of all of the advancements humanity has made in my lifetime, 
the ease of the U.S. mail system is probably the most incredible one because I can take almost anything and I can just stuff it into something else and I can send it to whoever I want anywhere in the world. And when they get that thing, it's a surprise. And when they open it up and they touch it with their hands, they know that actually there's, there's oil from my fingers that's on that thing. And it's like, it's not just clicking a button on an email inbox. You know, like when, when Neneko gets a letter from me in the mail, he's holding a piece of paper that I've actually rubbed over my, my knee. And, uh, and then I saved for a while before I decided to write him a letter. Um, you know, when I, I guess when I see something that I find really special, then I try to give some amount of a personal reach out. Um, I, I think email is floppy and I think Facebook is pathetic, even though I use it all the time and I hate myself for that. But there are still options. I mean, you can write a letter on a coconut and if you put enough stamps on it, they'll take it at the mail office and it'll show up a week and a half later wherever the address is that you shaved into the side of the thing. It's totally, it's totally amazing. And I would recommend everyone listening to go ahead and pick someone that you admire and write them a letter and just see what happens. This message has been brought to you by the U.S. Postal Service. This episode of Little City Big Sound is brought to you by the 5th Annual Bellingham Folk Festival, January 25th through 27th, 2019. Each day of the festival offers opportunities to attend inspiring workshops, participate in dances and jams, and each evening features performances from local legends and visiting international award winners. In fact, as I'm reading through this lineup, I see that my old friend and musical collaborator Tanya Hladek was performing on Sunday along with Cody Hogue. I should give her a ring and see what they have planned. This is Tanya. Hey, Tanya, it's David Pender Lofgren from Little City Big Sound. Oh, hey, David. How are you doing? Great, how are you doing? Great. Uh, I'm calling because I heard that you are playing at the Bellingham Folk Festival this month. Is that right? It's true. I am playing with Cody Hogue on Sunday night. And you've been to uh, folk festivals before, right? I have. I've actually been to every single year of the folk festival since it began. Every year of the Bellingham Folk Festival? I have, yeah. Why do you keep coming back? What do you like so much about it? There's so many things that I like about it. You know, the music's always great. The workshops are fun. Um, I always love getting to connect with um, the musical community of Bellingham. There's so many great players, um, both old friends that I've played with for a long time. And then um, I always end up connecting with new, making new friends, new musical connections. Um, so that's always great. That's awesome. Well, hey, I can't wait to see you play. Yeah, I can't wait to be there. See you there. Yeah, see you there. Whether it's for the great music, the fun workshops, or just to reconnect with old friends and make a few new ones, there's something for everyone at the Bellingham Folk Festival. That's January 25th through the 27th. For details and ticketing information, visit thebellinghamfolkfestival.com. Now, back to my conversation with Thomas Deacon. In uh, the recent interview that you did with Brent Cole for What's Up, 
you said that you're moving to Louisville to spend the next five years exploring the accordion. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about that. Well, um, I inherited Lucas Hicks's old accordion. It's a phenomenal instrument. I can see why he liked it. Um, it must have been designed by absolute degenerates. It is a beast of an instrument. And I love instruments of all different kinds. Uh, I mean, since I started kind of getting into them, I can't actually remember one that I really, truly didn't totally fall in love with right away. But the accordion is an absolutely... It's in, a, it's in a class by itself. It's a totally phenomenal... It's a totemic item. I mean, it is a, um, it is a triumph of handiwork and industrialization at the same time. It is the kind of instrument that could only possibly come along once in the evolution of the human species. There's nothing else that really wraps up the entirety of man's ability to manipulate objects in physical space like the accordion. You start with a wood box that has to be seasoned for six to seven years, and it sits in this humidity-controlled environment. And they pack it with more than 4,000 tiny hand-shaped pieces that include zinc and steel um, reed plates that are held in place by what they call reed wax. It's actually kind of a rosin mixed with beeswax mixed with mineral oil. It's got a melting point of 150 degrees Fahrenheit, and that holds it in place. The bellows are hundreds and hundreds of layers of waxed paper that are kind of laminated each just one at a time by hand in a workshop somewhere and finally rimmed with leather and finished off with these little tiny corner pieces of metal tin that's stamped around this very graceful shape. Um, It's held together with tacks and needles. There's no screws. It's just kind of, it's an absolute wonder that the thing doesn't just melt into a puddle of pieces. And then what people can do on it is just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, it's laid out perfectly to be played. It's an instrument designed by music theory, not necessarily, um, not really. Like a saxophone is kind of designed willy-nilly. It's an extendable tube that's been had adjustments made to it over the last 200 years. And the accordion is kind of a perfectly laid out instrument. Um, it's laid out theoretically. It has two different instruments, one the left hand, one the right hand. And you can, it's a, it's an orchestra in a box. I mean, in the entire rest of the world, it's taken the place of the electrical, uh, the electric guitar. America has the electric guitar. The planet has the accordion. Um, there is, as far as I know, there's no folk music that doesn't include some form of the accordion. It is represented throughout every known musical culture on the planet. Um, and that's not just my opinion. You can go to the library and look it up if you want to. And it sounds like this accordion is a pretty special one. Absolutely. It still smells like him. You can see wear marks on it, you know, like where his, where his left wrist was rubbing up against the, the outer box, the outer edge of the box of the accordion. I mean, the, the leather strap that your left hand goes through is actually shaped to Lucas's left arm. I mean, there are scratches and dents on that thing that I remember watching happen. So yeah, it's a very special and powerful 
and strange instrument. And uh, it's an honor to take care of it and to have it in my possession. And I'm really looking forward to lighting a fire and just sitting by it and um, learning as many tunes as I possibly can on the thing and learning how to get around on it. Five years? Yeah, I figure that's enough time to kind of figure out uh, how little I know about everything. And then probably the next 45 or 50 years will be dedicated to really buckling down on it. So this is a special accordion, not only because of its previous owner, but... Um, I mean, I it'll mean, always be Lucas's accordion. It's not just the previous owner. I'm just going to take care of it for a while for him. Hmm. And Lucas picked this specific accordion out, right? This yep. is like the type of accordion he wanted to play. This is this is his jam. Can you get slightly nerdy and explain what like what what how, how is that accordion different <laughs> from your a normal like piano accordion? Sure. Um In the world of accordions, you have two basic accordion styles that you're dealing with. One is diatonic and one is chromatic. A diatonic accordion is more is a lot more like a harmonica, whereas there's one note sounded when you inhale the accordion and there's one note sounded, a different note sounded when you exhale the accordion, the bellows, or what, what accordion players call the push and the pull. That's a diatonic accordion. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a chromatic accordion, which is an accordion that can play every possible note of our Western 12-tone scale, which is not every possible note, but it's every note that we're familiar with in popular music. Um, when you're talking about chromatic accordions, you kind of have two basically different kinds. You have one, a keyboard accordion, which on the left-hand side has a system of rows of buttons that are completely incomprehensible. And then on the right-hand side has a keyboard, like a small piano keyboard, that um, you know that most people have seen before. That's a very classic American style accordion. The other style would be a chromatic button accordion, which on the left hand side has that exact same completely incomprehensible system of um, you know six to twelve rows of buttons, and then on the right hand has an equally baffling uh, arrangement of buttons that just has like absolutely no logical sense anywhere. You can't really see anything about it. it just looks like a bunch of black and white dots, and even then. Once you have your chromatic button accordion, you have a very popular style in most of Western Europe and kind of the only thing you can find in America. And then you have something that almost all of Eastern Europe uses. And the Western style is the chromatic C system button accordion. The Eastern style would be what the Russians call a bayan or a chromatic B system accordion. And even then, if you're talking about the C system button accordion, like what Lucas has, then there's a Finnish style, there's a Scandinavian style, and, and uh, there is a classic Western style. There's all these different styles, but he has what's kind of widely acknowledged as the common C-system chromatic button accordion, which is bass notes and chords arranged on the left hand, and then all of your melody buttons available on the right hand. It has three different entire read sets with five different switches that can activate one or a combination of any of those read sets at the same time. It is a phenomenally difficult and demanding instrument. It is uh, absolutely incomprehensible for a while. 
and even to find a toehold on it, it's like a blank cliff face. Like, if you're going to find anything on the thing, then you're going to slide most of the way down, and you're probably going to die. And in the last second, maybe you'll find something. And then um, my understanding is that you have to base the entire rest of your life off that little tiny thing that you found. Because when Lucas got it, he was actually sending letters and emails, and I mean, he was watching YouTube channels, and he was trying to find someone. He was like, I want a teacher. I want someone who can teach me how to play this instrument because it is so strange. And he talked to some of the finer C-system chromatic button accordion players in the world, and he talked to different composers from all over the place, and kind of everyone told him the same thing. They were like, yeah, I don't know, just keep going. You know, like, I'm not really sure. The, uh, there's not really any advice I can give you. Why don't you just try it out? And I think that might be something that was really attractive to him, uh, as a trailblazer, as a revolutionary, as an iconoclast, as someone who was very just hell-bent on doing things his own way, he had finally found some sort of a match in this instrument that was absolutely unforgiving, um, that didn't care one bit about him or his feelings, that had absolutely nothing helpful to offer. And not only that, but it inspired an entire cultish following all around the world of similarly cantankerous people who also had absolutely nothing helpful to offer. You know, it's like, this is an instrument that is built for people who are trying to get lost in the woods. It was something that will, uh, it would totally move in and eat all your food. And once you died, it would go after you too. It was just like this wild instrument that could not give a fuck about anything. Um... Yeah, now it lives, now it's like right outside my bedroom and it's just lurking there all the time and it never tires, it will never sleep, it will never die. And I will have to dedicate the rest of my life to learning how to play hot cross buns on it. Are you someone who's cantankerous and trying to get lost in the woods? No. Well, yeah. No. I don't know. <laughs> I found a nice train yard that I really like. Uh, I grew up in the woods. Actually, yeah, I think I'm, uh, I, I think I'm, I think I'm disappointed in modern day times, and I think I feel betrayed by humanity, and that's totally on me. That's something that I will have to reconcile for myself. But I do feel at odds with humanity, and I do feel conflicted and strange and shunted aside, and I do feel forgotten, and I do feel like... There is something going on specifically in this country that is specifically targeting me and um, other people who are interested in living lives that don't necessarily result in a heavy bottom line. I feel like there's something going on that wants to snuff us out, and I feel like uh, I'm, I'm in the reticle. I feel like I am being targeted. I guess I do want to get lost in the woods. It would be a fantasy to have a quiet spot in the woods where... I could fell the trees and let them sit quiet for two years, and then I could come back and I could build my own log cabin and do it right and, uh, and do it small, and do it quiet, and just be left alone. But then maybe that's a fantasy everybody has. Why wouldn't they? If for not a lack of imagination, because it sounds really nice. And in a way, I kind of feel like that's what everyone is struggling for. And it, that's also what explains our present-day predicament of just, like, global failure on a massive scale. Um, there are people catching fish to take them out in a motorized boat to feed to starving orca whales. It's like, that's not a solution. That's a serious, serious sign. 
when that's the thing you think is going to fix everything, you're fucked. And it just seems like that's going on all over the world right now in so many different ways. And there's no place in the woods to get lost anymore. Because they got satellite shit. I mean, everything's being watched. The borders are on lockdown. And they know exactly where the passports go. And it's a... We have suddenly entered into this time where you can't get lost anymore. Unless you're playing accordion. Do you feel like there's... I mean, you have spent a good chunk of your life now as a performer, as someone who, like, is not just a part of the world, but, like, is... Uh, interfacing with a whole lot of people all at the same time in your own way. That to me feels like sort of the opposite of getting lost. Am I wrong? I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, it's it's the ultimate... Um, you know, if the story of the desires of humanity is just to be acknowledged in the eyes of your fellow man and woman, then... It's kind of the ultimate. Like, the more people that you're exposed to, kind of the more you know for a fact that you exist. On the other hand, if you're constantly a moving target and you never stay in one place for very long and you don't have to ever settle into a day-to-day regimen, kind of the minutia of actually getting along with people through life's everyday frustrations, uh, well, maybe no one really knows you. Maybe you're actually never seen. But... There definitely seems to be some aspect of my personality where um, the perform maybe the performance is like a byproduct, you know. I'm not I'm not necessarily interested in getting up in front of a whole bunch of people and making a bunch of noise, but it seems like people enjoy it when I do it, and I know that I like making a bunch of noise, and so if I can make seventy five dollars by getting up in front of a bunch of people and making a bunch of noise, and they seem to enjoy it, I can't really think of a reason not to. Do you feel lucky that you found music? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I think I think probably all of the better factors of my life have come along through music. I think that it has very much been a passport to liberation. Um, I think it's the only place that I have found where you can make any... You can make... You can... You can experiment in any way that you want in a completely consequence-free environment. Like, no one's going to get hurt if you play an A-flat instead of an A. And no one's going to get hurt if you decide to change the chords or decide to change the arrangement or decide that you want to take it around one more time or decide that you want to stop right now or any anything. It's just a totally free place where everyone can really do whatever it is that they want to do. Like, they can really... People can honestly be themselves and it's very difficult to make the case that they're trying to hurt anyone because the arena itself is so safe. And as, and, and as I've gotten more and more into music, I've come to see it more kind of like a refuge. Like it's a, it is a place where you can go if you just want to be quiet or if you want to make the maximum amount of noise or if you don't want to talk to anyone or you want to talk to as many people as you possibly can get 
in one place at the same time. It's kind of the only place you can do anything. It is like it's the last wilderness, maybe. I feel incredibly fortunate to have found music, even though I've tried to put it down many times and failed every time. It seemed like you um, have really gotten wrapped up into, like fully embraced by the community of people that uh, were around Lucas and are are still around each other. Um, I mean, you're leaving town now. Does it feel like you're leaving like a f- part of your family behind or something? Does it feel like... Did you just fall in love with Lucas or did you fall in love with a bigger piece of the thing? I think there are a lot of aspects of the last three or four years that might, you know, if I make it to an old age, I'll probably look back, hopefully on a life fairly well lived. And remember the last three or four years is probably the best time of my life. And I'm not really sure. I mean, there were... I don't really know how to answer that question. I mean, there's so many... There's so many wonderful people that I've had the honor of meeting in the last few years. And that have really been a joy to spend time with and to get to know and have been an incredible inspiration and, and, and just had such a gigantic impact on who I am and how I see the world and how I envision humanity and how I see my place in all of this. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, Lucas had built himself a world here in Bellingham that included the characters that he would have wanted to populate it with. And he had a gift for finding people like that and, to, and for drawing them out and for making them feel included and for making them feel special as they are. Maybe just a gift for really valuing people for what, for what they are already and, uh, and helping them really connect to each other. Yeah, I mean, I, f- I fell. In, I guess I fell in love with a lot of aspects of just living, of being alive in the last three or four years, and that there were many things I experienced that I had never actually imagined even existed or were possible or were worth, um, or were worth trying to seek out. And through meeting Lucas and through developing music with him and through spending time with him and and getting to know. Um, this specific group of people is just like a very wondrous thing to see. It's a very special group of people. It's a really imaginative and creative and magical group of friends that I will miss intensely when I leave town. But I also think it's time to strike out. It's It's not time to go back to what is comfortable and what is safe and what is known. And that if ever there was a time to strike out, you know, kind of a little bit past the borders and into a place that that not many people that I know have have experienced, then it's now. And I kind of 
maybe in the last few years I've developed a little bit of the comfort with myself that I would need for that or the tools that I would need to kind of make my way a little bit. And I can only hope that I find more people like that out there. And, uh, you know, maybe I can drag a little bit of that home with me next time I come up northwest. There's a particular community in Thomas, West Virginia that I'm very fond of. Actually, three of them are coming out this weekend for the Deacon Hicks release show. And I'm pretty thrilled to have them kind of bobble around Bellingham and run into folks and maybe we can make a little connection happen. When we started this interview, I was feeling like um like Bellingham is is losing someone who has been a very big and inspirational part of uh the musical community that we've had over the last 10 or 12 years. At least that's as far as I've been here. I know you started a little bit before then. But now that you say that, it makes me feel like... uh, Maybe we're just lucky that you're going out into the world and might be able to drag some more interesting folks back to us every once in a while. Well, I'll do my best. Thanks for being here, Thomas. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm really glad you guys are doing this. All right, that's a wrap for this month's episode. Thanks again to Thomas Deacon for his contributions, musical and otherwise, to our little city. In fact, the music you're hearing behind me right now is by none other than Deacon Hicks. This track is entitled Left on Lincoln from their final album, The Last. If you'd like to see a fantastic video of Thomas singing I've Got the World on a String from his kitchen in Louisville, Kentucky, head to our website, littlecitybigsound.com. While you're there, you can drop us a line, and of course, you could donate to the show or sign up to become a continuing sponsor. Every little bit helps. Also, I'm excited to announce that the show is now available on Spotify. So if you Spotify, you can add us to your library, and each new episode will be delivered straight to your favorite listening devices. This episode's interview was recorded by Andy Rick at the Stabin Cabin. Our theme music was written and performed by Andy Rick, and our logo was designed by Andy Rick. Thanks for everything, Andy. Next month's episode will feature owner of The Shakedown and The Racket and a bass player for local heavies Dryland, the veritable Renaissance woman, Holly Huthman. Oh, and from all of us at Little City Big Sound, Happy New Year. <laughs>